today uh, we're going to do something, some thinking on the topic of health. Um, it's at the very least an uncomfortable topic, and I think for many of us that's because it just doesn't seem to sit right with this loving Christian God that we hear about. How can this loving God of the Bible speak of judgment and health? First up, we're going to hear a talk by guest speaker Ben Smart. Uh, it's great to have him here. And then straight after the talk, you, you have an opportunity to ask your toughest questions. So I'd like to invite Ben down now, so please give him a welcome. Firstly, I'd just like to know a bit about your background. Uh, can you share with us your background? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'll give you like a 15 second overview of my life <laughs> so you get a sense of who I am. I'm, I was born in Ballarat in Victoria over on the East Coast. Lived there four years. I moved to Melbourne, lived there four years. I moved to Fiji, moved there, lived there for four years. Moved to Sydney, lived there for six years. Moved to Canada in Toronto, lived there for four years. And then moved to Perth and have now lived here for three years. So uh, at the end, if anyone can tell me how old I am based on that, you get a gold star because the numbers are all in there. But it's now been three years in Perth uh, with my Canadian wife, Alex, two young daughters. And I came here to uh, come on staff at a church in Shenton Park. So that's what I've been doing for the last three years. Great. Excellent. Um, now, yeah, now back to this topic of God and hell. Um, can you share with us a bit about what has prepared you to have answers on this difficult topic? Yeah, absolutely. And it is a difficult topic and I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it. I've certainly got no PhD in health studies, if there is such a thing. And um, I haven't been there personally, so I can't speak from that experience. But it is something that, as a follower of Jesus for a long time, this is something you may be aware that Jesus speaks more than anyone else about uh, in the New Testament about hell. Jesus, the making mild. And so if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I thought, well, this is something I need to really think hard about. Uh, if Jesus thinks it's important to talk about, I've got to think about it. And more broadly as well, I think, uh, no matter what religious background or non-religious background we're from, we all know that what we think about the future affects how we live now. So it's something that I've thought a lot about because of those reasons, yeah. Great. All right. Well, I'll leave you here. We're really excited to hear from you. Beautiful. Well, it's great to be here with you guys. Uh, really uh, glad to be thinking about this uh, difficult and serious question as we think about what the Bible teaches about hell. Um, as Rob mentioned, there'll be time for questions afterwards. So do write down any questions. We've got a brief time, so I'm going to do the best with what we've got, but I'm going to try to give us a good amount of questions, uh, time for questions at the end. Um, so there'll be hopefully lots of questions coming out of what I do and don't say. So push me hard on it because we don't want to shy away from the difficult questions here. So our question today is, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? Now, while that is a question about hell, of course, we recognise ultimately it's a question about God's character, isn't it? What kind of God would send people to hell if hell is what we think it is? Doesn't that make him cruel and vindictive? A sadistic God, even. So uh, before we address that question, let's just get our terms straight. So here's a 30-second crash course on hell. Uh, the Bible teaches that one day, no one knows when, Jesus will return and everyone who has died will be raised from death to stand before God on the day of judgment. You can see that in John 5, 28 to 29 on Jesus' lips. And the Bible teaches that on this day, God will give every person exactly what they deserve for how they've lived. God will render on that day perfect justice, reward where it is due and punishment where it is due. So what does it look like for people to receive justice for those who have done wrong? How does God punish who have done wrong? Well, the Bible's answer in a word is hell. So that's just a brief introduction to what we're talking about. 
And there are many reasons that we might find the concept of hell objectionable. To get to the heart of it in the brief time that we have, to get to the the real crux of the matter, I think there are two questions that we have to address. First of all, isn't hell unnecessary? The question of why does God have to punish at all? And secondly, isn't hell unjust? If God does have to punish, why does he have to do it in such a seemingly cruel and disproportionate way? So, isn't hell unnecessary? Isn't it unjust? And first of all, most basic, why does God need to punish at all? Why can't God just forgive? I mean, if you heard in that little crash course that we gave on hell, according to the Bible, on the Day of Judgment, God is actually going to raise people from the dead. So they're going to be dead, but he's going to raise them so that he can judge them. So if that's true, we might think, well, why does God do that? I mean, why not just leave them dead? Wouldn't that be a much more merciful thing to do, to just let things be? So it would seem far more merciful and forgiving if God simply let things go. And if God were really good and loving... Why wouldn't he just do away with hell altogether? Now, I think, first of all, uh, the the way we need to come at this question is to think about the problem of justice. Because, you see, when we stop to think about it, if God were to simply sweep things under the carpet with no regard for justice, it would be fundamentally unloving. Two months ago, your Facebook feeds were full of stories about the Stanford rape case. You may remember it, a Brock Turner, a talented swimmer and student at Stanford University, was convicted of sexually assaulting an intoxicated and unconscious woman. Now, that is an absolutely horrific crime, but that's not what made the story go viral. Because, of course, you know, tragically that kind of crime happens all too often. But the story did go viral. And do you remember why it was? What made it go viral was not the nature of the crime, but rather of the punishment. He was convicted, Brock Turner found guilty, but only given a six-month jail sentence in a low-security county jail near to where he would live. Six months for sexually assaulting an unconscious woman. The people were outraged. I mean, six months is a slap on the wrist. This poor woman is going to be dealing with the trauma and consequences of being sexually assaulted for the rest of her life. And this guy's going to get out in six months? So it was the light sentence that caused outrage. But it's worth asking, why does him receiving a light punishment bother us? I hope it does, by the way. But why does it make us feel that way? Again, it's not simply the horrific nature of the crime. What bothers us is the feeling of injustice, seeing something do, someone do something horrible and get away with it. Now, deep down, we know that it's not a good thing. It offends our sense of justice. It's not right. And so you see, that's the problem with saying, well, why can't God just sweep it all under the carpet? Why does God need to punish people at all? Because to do so would be unjust. Outrageous. I mean, it wouldn't be right. Imagine if that judge had said to Brock Turner, Oh, you know what, mate? You've, you've done a bad thing, but I'm a pretty loving guy. I'm pretty merciful. I'm going to let you go away with it. No punishment. You're free to go. What would the response have been? There is no way that that could happen. Can you imagine how that would make the victim feel? Deep down, we know that that is deeply wrong. And yet, for some reason... 
That's what we expect that God should do on the final day of judgment. But no, God can't just sweep it under the carpet. And this becomes all the more serious when you think about just how much injustice that goes on in this world. Not just evil that is done, but people that get away with evil. All someone has to do is mention the name uh, Auschwitz and we're reminded instantly of one of the most atrocious evils in human history. Auschwitz, of course, is the name of one of the Nazi extermination camps where between (coughs) 1.1 and 1.5 million people, predominantly Jews, were massacred during World War II. Men, women and children. It's estimated that between 6,500 to 8,000 Nazi SS personnel were involved at Auschwitz at one time or another during its operation, each one of whom knew exactly what was going on and enabled the massacre to continue. Now, you may have heard about uh, the Nuremberg trials or other trials like it. When World War II finished, there were uh, trials to bring people to justice for war crimes, like those committed at Auschwitz, to bring people to justice. But have a guess. Of the 7,000-odd Nazi SS personnel who contributed and worked at uh, the Auschwitz camp, how many do you think ever stood trial? 789. Only 750 actually received convictions. And uh, most of them received sentences as light as three years in jail. The vast majority, about 90%, got off completely scot-free. They never even stood trial for the atrocities that they had done. They just got to go on and live their lives. In fact, a handful are still alive today in Germany, in their 90s, in good old age, having lived long lives. People who ran Auschwitz. Isn't that crazy? To think that 90% completely got away with it. But where is the justice? How does that make the survivors and the families of the victims feel? It's outrageous, isn't it? And so for God to then simply shrug it off and sweep it under the carpet would be a gross injustice as well. And history and even the present day is littered with people who do atrocious wrongs and never have to stand trial for it. Did you hear about the latest suicide bombing in Yemen? Dozens killed? Well, the perpetrator of that, who strapped on the bomb and placed the ball bearings to cause maximum damage to the innocent people who would be ripped apart by the explosive device, will he ever stand trial? No, deep down we recognise that justice is a good thing. And so God cannot simply let these things go unpunished on the final day of judgement. You know, we all know that it's good when justice is done. That's why karma is such an attractive idea, even to those of us who aren't religious. Karma, you know, what goes around comes around. Everything you do will be done back to you in equal measure. The beauty about the concept of karma is that it represents the ideal of justice. Now, the Bible doesn't teach karma. And the reality, as we all know, is we don't see karma work out in this life. We don't see everyone receive exactly what they deserve in this life. But the Bible teaches that on the final day of judgment, this ideal of justice will be carried out. Romans 2.16, God will bring into light every hidden thing, every hidden action, thought and motive. No one will get away with evil. The suicide bomber who never had to face a trial. The priest who used religion as a cover-up for atrocious evil. The Auschwitz guard who got to live a long and free life. 
According to the Bible, on the final day of judgment, God will bring about justice. And everyone will receive exactly what they deserve, not one iota more or less. So that's the, the first big question that I, have to, we, I think we have to wrestle with, is, isn't hell unnecessary? Why does God have to punish it all? Uh, but deep down we know it's unloving and downright wrong to do that. But the second question is, isn't hell unjust? Because you see, while deep down we might recognise that it's a good thing for justice to be done, it's precisely that sense of justice that we have that makes hell feel wrong. It feels disproportionate and cruel. Infinite punishment for a finite crime. You know, sure, some people have done pretty bad things. And I think if you think hard about it, all people have done many bad things. But a lot of people are quite decent as well. So doesn't it seem grossly disproportionate to chuck all of the people into just the same lake of fire and have them be tortured forever? What kind of a God would do that? And now here is the crux of the debate about hell. And this is the absolute turning point in how we think about this. On the one hand, if it really is true that hell is disproportionate and the punishment exceeds the crime, then God would be unjust and loving. There'd be no denying it. It's as simple as that. So if you really want to grill me at question time because uh, you want to come back on something or don't agree with something I've said, uh, this is the heart of it. This is where you need to press me. Because if, if hell is disproportionate, God is unjust and unloving. It's as simple as that. But on the other hand, if hell is proportionate, if it's actually perfect justice, if it's the perfect ideal of which karma is only a shadow, then God is not unloving or unjust. We, we wouldn't have a problem if that was what hell really was, uh, with God being loving and still sending people to hell, because we would realise that he would actually be the writer of wrongs, the restorer of justice. The vindicator of the oppressed and mistreated. So where we view hell, disproportionate or proportionate, makes all the difference. I hope you can see that. Now interestingly enough, whether you're a Christian or not, I think people in both camps actually tend to assume that hell is disproportionate. So this isn't just a problem that uh, non-Christians have about Christianity. It's also... uh, it's something that Christians, if you press them on it, they'll be a bit squeamish about hell. We don't really know what to do with it. And it feels like a powerful objection because deep down we think, yeah, I don't know why God would do that. You know, C.S. Lewis, a well-known Christian author and apologist, speaking about hell, summed up what many people feel. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But... It has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord Jesus' own words. That's in the problem of pain. So his sentiment has been shared countless times by many others. I believe in hell because Jesus clearly teaches it, the Bible teaches it, but I wish it weren't true. Now why do you think people like C.S. Lewis wish it weren't true? Well, it's because we believe it to be cruel, disproportionate, excessive and unjust. But did you know that the Bible teaches precisely the opposite? Uh, listen to what Luke, Jesus says about this in Luke 12. Uh, just for context, in Luke 12, Jesus is talking about the final judgment using the metaphor of a master who goes away on a long journey, uh, leaves some of his servants in charge, um, and he comes back and some servants have acted faithfully in his absence and some have acted wickedly, getting drunk and beating up other servants. 
And so when the master returns to the house, which if you're following the metaphor, that's Jesus' second coming when the day of judgment comes, he will punish the disobedient servants in proportion to what they've done. So this is how he explains this proportionality of God's judgment in Luke 12, 47 to 48. He says, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. If you listen to Jesus' language, when he talks about the final judgment, he's going to great lengths to show that it's going to be completely proportional according to what people knew and according to what people did. Romans 2 says the same thing. Talking about people who've never heard God's law, say some Amazonian tribesman who doesn't even know what the Ten Commandments are, Talking about God's judgment, it says, this is Romans 2 verse 14 to 16, that God will judge them not according to the law that they've never heard of, but only according to their consciences, to the moral law that God's placed on their hearts. Deep down, all people know that murder is wrong, and so that's the only thing that they'll be held to account for. So in God's final judgment, we see a great different levels where people will only be punished according to what they know and what they do. It's perfect proportionality, if you like, perfect justice. So that's what the Bible teaches about God's final judgment. But I think that the reason we struggle with the concept of God sending people to hell is that we've got quite a different picture of hell and God's judgment from the one that the Bible actually teaches. We picture an underground torture chamber where, with a lake of fire where demons with pitchforks are cruelly tormenting people who are helpless and uh, they're in unimaginable agony every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade, of every century and on and on and on for the rest of eternity without ceasing. Does that sound vaguely familiar? I'll hazard a guess that that's what most of us think about when we think about hell. And to be fair, I think that's the way many Christians talk about hell. So if you're coming from a non-religious background and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what hell sounds like. I don't blame you for thinking that's what it is. But did you know that that bears actually very little resemblance to what the Bible teaches about hell? Just about the only part of that that does come from the Bible is the idea of a lake of fire. You do find that in the book of Revelation. But even that phrase, you'll only find in that one book, Revelation... And talk to any half-decent Bible scholar, Christian or otherwise, and they'll tell you that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That is, a very specific genre of literature, which is not common today, but very common in the ancient world, in religious and unreligious texts, that heavily leans on images and pictures to convey ideas that aren't necessarily meant to be understood literally. So in hell, will there be a literal lake of fire? We actually don't know. What it symbolises, what it points to, is a place of judgement where true justice will be done. But what that actually looks like, you'll be surprised how little the Bible actually spells out for us. We have our, this idea in our mind that uh, the Bible has some pretty gruesome descriptions of the horrors of hell. That it says things like this. Uh, let me read a few verses about God's judgement. Uh, Indeed, those who disbelieve, we will drive them into a fire. 
Every time their skins are roasted through, we'll replace them with other skins so that they may taste the punishment all over again. Those who disbelieved will have cut out for them garments of fire, poured on their heads will be scalding water, and you'll see the criminals that day bound together in shackles, their garments made of liquid pitch, melted copper, and their faces covered with fire. When they thirst and cry out for mercy, they'll be given to drink boiling water so that it cuts up their bowels to pieces. That's the kind of thing that we imagine the Bible says about hell, right? But did you know not one of those verses is taken from the Bible? All of them taken from the Quran. I mention that simply by way of contrast because I think we assume the Bible does say those kind of things. And it's important that we realise that it doesn't. That we actually ask how much of our understanding of what hell is, is taken from the Bible, and how much of it is taken from medieval paintings, from Dante's Inferno, and from our cultural depictions of what hell is like. You'll find no descriptions like that in the Bible. I mean, push me on this on question time. I mean, make no mistake, Jesus says that you don't want to go there. He says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that it'll be very real punishment. But the idea we have of hell as some extreme and unbearable torture that lasts for every moment for all eternity is more a product of those paintings in Dante's Inferno and those kind of things than what the Bible actually teaches. But when we look at what the Bible says and doesn't say, we see quite a different picture. Especially since the Bible explicitly teaches that whatever hell does look like, and what it does look like, the Bible doesn't say, whatever it looks like, it'll be perfectly proportional and just. When we see it, it will be clear to everyone that God has done what is right and just. No one will be saying, oh, I've got a hard bargain, or I've barely done anything in this life, and you've thrown me into this unbearable torture. Not at all. The Bible gives us a picture of perfect proportional justice. Remember, the key question is, is hell unjust? Uh, Very seriously, if you can show me that the that the Bible's view of hell is disproportionate, I will concede that God is unjust and unloving. It's as simple as that. But when we move aside our preconceptions and look what the Bible actually teaches, I think we'll be surprised at what we find. Now, just before we close and move to questions, uh, you'll remember that this is not ultimately a question about hell, although it is that, but ultimately it's a question about God's character, isn't it? It's how can a loving God send people to hell? But once again, when you actually stop to look at, look at the Bible, it doesn't teach us about a cruel and vindictive and sadistic God, but a loving one. Yes, a God of justice, and we know that that's a good thing, but also one of mercy and love. You know, in Ezekiel 33, 11, from the Old Testament, God says, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn from their ways and live. 1 Timothy 2, 4, in the New Testament, says... That God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God's not vindictive. He wants us to be saved. But if we choose to reject him in this life, he will honour that choice. C.S. Lewis said it well, that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, I'll live for you. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. See, if a person chooses to reject God and to live apart from him, he will ultimately give them what they want. 
That's why one of the many ways that the Bible talks about hell is as an eternal separation from God. That God is the source of all life and joy and goodness. And to choose to reject him is to separate ourselves from him and all those good things that come from his nature. God lets us choose, but he wants us to choose life. And the Bible shows us not a cruel and vindictive God, but a loving God who is willing to send his own son to bear our punishment on the cross so that we could be forgiven, saved from the justice that we all deserve. I know I've done things that deserve justice. But Jesus took those punishments so that God could forgive me and yet still be just. If the Bible teaches about that kind of God who at great cost to himself, would do that kind of thing. And then we see that the Bible's picture of of God is not cruel or vindictive at all, but self-sacrificially loving. So I think, you know, if you object to a cruel and vindictive God who uh, delights in mercilessly torturing his victims, I agree with you. So does Jesus. The Bible does too. Um, Now, I've had to be quite brief here because we've got a very short amount of time and I'd like to engage with the questions that you have. So what I've said, hopefully, can't cover everything in perfect detail, will elicit some questions. So if anyone's got questions on what I've said, what I haven't said, other points of hell that you think I've not touched on the way you'd like, are there any questions that people have? Yep? Um, just out of curiosity, like many Christians have argued that um, on the very nature of, I guess, the eternal separation of hell, like some, some says that, you know, it's eternal damnation is like eternal torment and punishment um, but some say that it's rather like a complete annihilation yeah um, like what's which one's biblical like because with the bible uses the words such as eternal torment but also like things like perish yeah and all that so yeah, which one is yeah that's a great question so you know essentially does the bible teach so the the two ideas that are prevailing in terms of uh, what christians believe the bible teaches about hell Uh, eternal conscious torment and uh, annihilationism, which is, so on the one hand, people will be eternal, forever, conscious and torment. In some ways, a slightly unhelpful term because it it elicits that it's going to be severe, constant punishment, but it need not necessarily be that depending on what a person's done. But which does the Bible teach? Traditionally, most Christians go with eternal conscious torment. Um... But the Bible uses language of both. So especially if you look at the, Jesus, the, word, the language Jesus uses, so Matthew 10, 28, he says, uh, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So he's talking about people in this life. You know, uh, Christians are extremely persecuted. He said, don't fear them. Rather fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, so that sounds like destruction, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians 1, 9 talks about eternal destruction. Um, Hebrews 10 talks about a fire that consumes Essentially, uh, the Christians can't agree on which it is. I lean towards annihilationism, probably a combination of the two, that uh, they'll receive it, people will receive exactly what they deserve and then be annihilated. What's, the Bible's not clear on exactly which it'll be. The Bible's clear that whichever it'll be, it'll be just. So um, some people go to annihilationism because they feel that eternal conscious torment will necessarily be, be unjust. I don't think that's right or helpful, um, but I think there's a lot to say about the Bible that leans us in that direction. And we, yeah, we could talk after and look at a lot of specific examples, but I think, um, and you know, even so, if, if you know, like, great evangelical thinkers like um, John Stott, 
hold to annihilationism, but ultimately say, yeah, the Bible's not 100% clear. And, and just quickly, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to um, our objection that hell is unjust, that the assumption there is that we know what hell is like, and therefore what we understand it to be is unjust. But the reality is, uh, the Bible really doesn't show us exactly what it would be like, and so we don't have a strong grounds to say we can confidently know what it would be like, and therefore it is unjust one way or the other. But yeah, that's an excellent question. Any other questions on anything that we've covered? We've got about 10 minutes, so we've got a bit of time to talk some of these things through. So on the topic of consciousness, uh, on the other hand, heaven, would we is it sure that that will be eternal consciousness, or will it just be the soul that kind of rests there? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, what if we're talking about heaven, uh, heaven and hell on both sides, will it be conscious? Yeah, so the Bible... Um, we tend to think about heaven as kind of, you know, again, that, those kind of um, uh, angels and harps and the clouds, that kind of thing, where, where the Bible talks about not soulless bodies in some ethereal place, but, um, sorry, not bodiless souls in some ethereal place, but a physical resurrection of bodies. So um, definitely the Bible gives us a picture of conscious in God's presence, not only souls, but we will have bodies like the ones we do. Living with God. Absolutely. Yeah, good question. Yep. So, I can hear all this question. You know how, like, we get this picture of hell from, like, medieval painting and stuff? Uh, with the voice of the heart and stuff, what does the Bible say about heaven, which is, like, contradictory to what we kind of have a preconceptual image of? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so. Um, I think yeah, the predominant one, I'm not sure where you could kind of trace this, but we tend to have a view of you know, the harps and the, the pearly gates and stuff. Some of that imagery does come from the book of Revelation. Um, but again, with the book of Revelation, not just on the topic of hell, but also on the topic of what heaven will be like, it's apocalyptic literature. So it talks about a lot of things like a, a, a massive gold cube, a city that will come down, streets paved with gold, um, it gives us all these dimensions of it. And uh, Bible scholars generally agree it's not telling us precisely that there's going to be this literal city. But if you look at the symbolism of the Old Testament, you look, okay, where do you see gold cubes? The inner sanctuary of the temple in the Old Testament was that. It was the place of God's inmost presence. And so it's a symbol po- pointing us to what uh, heaven will be like, what the new creation will be like. So um, again, the Bible is gives us a lot less clarity than we would probably like, a lot less clarity than uh, most people, Christian or otherwise, assume that is actually in there. But when you look at it, it's not so much. But um, again, just like uh, the the imagery of the lake of fire, it is meant to convey there is going to be a literal bad place where justice is done. So the image of the golden city, and it talks about trees that give life and God wiping away every tear... It's an image of whatever it's going to be like, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. So people talk about, you know, um, will there be football in heaven and will be this? And will it be, or will it just be like a long church service and we're all just singing? Or will it be like, oh no, there's going to be space travel, it's going to be just like this, but we can go anywhere and we have... Anytime you see anyone, that's, that's an overreach. The Bible doesn't tell us. It gives us snippets and um, not much more than that. This is a question. 
I'm a friend, and they're like, Jacob, does heaven, is it dog heaven? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to believe in freaking Christianity, isn't it dog heaven? It's really yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, um, no, that's not a stupid question at all. Because I mean, the reason all these kind of questions come up is precisely because uh, how, of how little specificity the Bible gives us. But um, so generally, people will go off things like, uh, you know, dogs don't have souls. Um, we don't really know one way or the other what the kind of inner, inner um, life of a dog is like, really. Um, but you know. Whether or not we see the same personalities of dogs that you'll meet your pet in heaven, the Bible really doesn't say. But, I mean, the new creation, heaven, is going to be like the creation that we have now, but just better in every way, without the corruption of sin and suffering that we see. So, I would be shocked if you didn't have, you know, perfect dogs in the new creation. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they never got you in the middle of the night to poo on your bed. Like, these are... There's potential there, yeah. You can throw him a bone there. <laughs> yeah, bad pun. You got me. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, can our suffering on hell and earth contribute to, if we do go to hell, um, the punishment that we have there? And mm. if so, um, does that mean that someone could receive um, justice while they're still alive? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me think. Yeah, it is possible that there's some correlation there. I mean, certainly if you look at Luke 16, when Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, it is only a parable, but he talks about the connection between, you know, you received good things in this life while this other guy didn't, um, and now he's receiving what is good. I imagine that it's quite possible that someone could receive a part of the justice they deserve for punishment. Certainly, especially in the Old Testament, you see people do die for sin, even in this life, like the Amalekites. Um, But I think, generally speaking, sin is more serious than we realise. The injustices that we ourselves commit, both against other people and against God, are more serious than we realise. So I don't think the Bible gives us much scope to believe that someone could suffer much in this life and therefore because of that amount of suffering, go to, hell. I go to heaven. Um, I don't think the Bible gives us much scope for that. But yeah, on the precise nature of that justice, could it be that someone who's had an extravagant life in this life and, um, and has misused that will receive more punishment than someone who's just lived in squalor for a short life? And Jesus does say to those, more, the more is given to you, the more will be demanded from you. The more opportunity you have for good, the more you're morally culpable for. So yeah, I don't know if that's helpful. It's a good question. We've got about five minutes. These are great questions. Yep. Oh, we'll go at the back here. Yeah. Yeah, so take our mate Amazonian Aaron. He's never even heard of the Ten Commandments. So the primary place to look for this is, uh, is Romans 1 and 2 in the Bible. Um, and essentially, it, the essential teaching is that that person will receive perfect justice only for what they knew and did and nothing more. So they won't be held accountable for what they didn't know. No one will go to hell because they haven't heard of Jesus. The only people who people will go to hell because they've done wrong and they deserve it. 
So that's absolutely true, that people only be judged according to what they know and do. When we hear that, we tend to think, oh good, therefore they're off the hook. But what Romans 1 and 2 actually teaches is, is quite different, to say even what the person who knows the least knows is probably going to be enough uh, to, to judge them. So all of us have on our hearts, we know that, I mean, I've got a kid who's like, who's 21 months old, like she can barely even talk. And from like the age of 14 months, if you could tell her no, she could understand, she'd look at you and smile and then do it. You know, there's this, we know that we, we know that we do things that are wrong. And so I think people who live in countries like this, everyone here in this room, because of what you've heard today, you will be judged more strictly than if you hadn't heard it. So the knowledge that we have does hold us to account, but, um, but even the Amazonian tribesman, he's done a lot of bad that he knows he shouldn't have. Um, and, and not just on the horizontal sphere against other human beings, but his, his very limited nature of God, which is simply that there's a creator, there's something divine, he's, he's failed to act towards God in the way that he ought to with his limited knowledge. But I do think there's scope within the Bible for uh, severely mentally handicapped or infants thinking actually, you know, God is perfectly just. If they can't know or culpably do anything, God is not going to punish them for it. We can be clear about that. And so, um, yeah, ultimately, it comes, a lot of it comes back to Genesis 18 to 25. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We can be confident in that. They need Jesus. That's why we need to go. So what if they never know about Jesus? Then they're not going to receive anything worse than they deserve, but they're going to receive what they deserve. And that's why Jesus says go. Yeah, so any Christian who takes this kind of seriously, you know, people say, oh, proselytism, oh, Christians just want to make people like them. If, if you know, um, the atheist comedian... Penn Jillette's got this great thing about, you know, if I believe there's a truck that's going to hit you, how unloving do I have to be to not tell you about it? You know, if you're, if you're a, a non-Christian and your Christian mate's invited you here to this, it's because he loves you. He wants you to not face justice, but to face mercy and forgiveness. And it's, we believe if we follow Jesus, it's really important that people who don't know about him, know about him. Just a quick question. What happens to people who would die before Jesus? And specifically, those people who God killed himself in the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah, so uh, prior to Jesus, so um, essentially the way, the way the Bible looks about it, so if you look at Romans 3, 25, it talks about um, God and his forbearance overlooking sin, and, but then the sins of people who even lived and died before Jesus, if they had a relationship of trust in God... Um, specifically under the old covenant, the people Israel, they would be forgiven by God, their sins would be imputed to Jesus in the future. That's how they could justly be forgiven. But uh, the person prior to Jesus, who's not in Israel, um, is in the same position as Amazonian Aaron today, has no access, and so no access to that specific um, uh, revelation from God. They have general revelation in creation, but not specific revelation. They'll be judged only according to what they know. 
When you look at people who died because of their sins, like the Amalekites in, um, in the Old Testament, there you see an example of God, part of God's justice being delivered in this life. God's completely within his, uh, you know, he's completely entitled to do that. And um, we can have confidence that they will receive nothing worse than they deserve. Yeah, so it is, um, it is very real that outside of Jesus, uh, justice is there. And yeah, so for the Old Testament, same thing as Amazon and Aaron. Is that helpful? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's our time. I'm going to be hanging around for a little bit, so feel free to come chat to me if you have more questions. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Thanks, Ben.